This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hello, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack podcast. About a year ago, the world watched as young women in Iran ripped off their hijabs and took to the streets. The protests pretty quickly snowballed as well, and it seemed like a revolution was again coming to Iran. But now, one year on, the streets are silent. We're going to hear about where that movement that was led by young Iranians is at today. Plus, I want to know, do you think showgirls are a weird, outdated, anti-feminist tradition, or do you think there's still a place for them in 2023? Because we're going to go to the ECA and find out. Hack. I get why people are kind of concerned about privacy, but at this point, do we have privacy anyway? On Triple J. Yeah, if you had a house inspection and the real estate agent was wearing a camera, would you be okay with it? Or what about if you were at a supermarket or a cafe and the staff were filming you? Well, apparently it's becoming more common because some staff are being abused by customers. And so business owners think that body-worn cameras are the answer. What do you think about this? Is this a good way to keep workers safe? Maybe to keep you safe if you work in one of these customer-facing roles. Or is it just another example of the death of privacy? Let me know what you think on 0439 757555. Lillian Watkins has more on this story. So we would get customers not liking a price. We'll use that scenario. Plainly yelling, screaming profanities. Yeah, it gets a bit full on, you know, like we haven't had anyone physically hurt, thank God, with us because we have disadvantaged workers. We have people with disabilities, you know, that does trigger people as well. So that's not really a safe haven for us. I'm at the incredible tip shop in Mackay, Queensland. It's like this massive secondhand warehouse and it absolutely goes off. All right, what were you after? Do you know what size that one is? Yeah, and then is that what you're... I've been here six years this year, so yes, I love it. (laughs) This is sales assistant Sheila and recently her uniform got a new addition. Okay, so I'm wearing a body cam. We introduced them in, I think it was a couple months ago now, um, just for the amount of abuse that we've had. Just before COVID hit, we we noticed it way more than ever. Um, And then, yeah, obviously gotten worse to the point that we've thought we've had to get body cams just for the security of our staff, but also the public, because there are sometimes fights between publics out here. So, you know, the thought of them getting hurt. So we care for our staff a lot. So we don't want them to be in harm's way coming to work. That's the last thing you ever want. At the bottom of Sheila's collar, there's a small camera. She says while they love most of their customers, some can get pretty aggressive. And that's just gotten worse since the cost of living stress has risen. The main idea of wearing these cameras is to de-escalate and deter people from being aggressive in the first place, but also to have proof if something did happen. And Sheila reckons these cameras have actually helped a lot. In my opinion, I've noticed the abuse has dropped 70%. You can kind of see an antsy customer coming up and then they see the body cam and they kind of tone it down. And they're not the only business arming their staff with these cameras. So there was an incident around 18 months ago where a staff member was actually locked into a house um, following a routine inspection. So she had called our office to say that the tenant would not let her out. This is Adele Crocker. She's a real estate agent and office manager at one of Mackay's major agencies for rentals. When I first started doing routine inspections, I know that stress 
wasn't there for me um, when walking into a home. I definitely feel it now, even as, you know, I've been into hundreds and hundreds of homes, but I definitely feel that stress, you know, heart beats a little bit faster if you haven't been in there before, um, just because it's the unknown. After a couple of incidents, including being accused of stealing, they made the call to suit up with the cameras when checking on their rentals. I think it's definitely lessened um, people's irritations, I suppose. They're a bit more um, subdued in having to have a go at us. I think too, it's about educating and we're just constantly saying it's for our safety, it's got nothing to do with you. Adele says the housing crisis has understandably had a huge impact on tenants or people looking for a home. Like it's a super stressful time to be a renter. And Adele says, unfortunately, it means tenants can get hostile. We're in a terrible state at the moment. I think there's around about 114 properties in Mackay available. Um, our wait list for properties is humongous. Um, and for us not to be able to help them is obviously very heartbreaking. Um, but it's a true testament as to what's actually going on with the housing crisis. And it is making people frustrated and angry. Even so, you might not love the thought of being filmed in a shop, let alone an agent filming inside your house. Adele's team does warn tenants in advance about the cameras and says it's purely for staff safety. They're not using the videos as a reference for how the house is being kept. But I asked the Residential Tenancies Authority about it and they say the use of cameras around Queensland isn't common, but it does happen. The RTA said the legislation governing rentals doesn't prohibit the use of cameras, but advised a real estate agent to provide written notice to tenants and to gain consent. The reality is this, under the Privacy Act in Queensland, uh, ordinary citizens, the police, uh, literally anybody, can wear a body-worn camera uh, in a public place where there is no expectation of privacy. This is criminal lawyer Bill Potts. He explained to me that in Queensland, it's perfectly legal for an agent to wear a camera inside a house, but they need consent to actually hit record unless an incident's unfolding and they want to record evidence. But a tenant has rights too. Unless they have your permission, or unless it's part of the lease requirement, uh, then the tenant has every right to require the real estate agent to, uh, to turn it off. From Agent Adele's perspective, it's been a good decision. So it does take its toll um, on the staff and it's awful to think that we're being abused for just doing our job. And Sheila from the tip shop also backs using them in her team 100%. There's a lot of people that are angry because things are just hard. Like when things are hard, it comes out in different ways. So trying to tone down that abuse and yeah, it goes back to our safe haven. Hack on Triple J. That was Lillian Watkins reporting. We have so many people messaging on the text line and it's I've got to say it's pretty divisive. Someone says, I'm a store manager for a major retailer and we have a team member abused weekly. Anything that might def deter that is a good idea. Connor from Aubrey says, yep, absolutely. If you don't like the rules of the store, it's simple. Just don't come in. Be a human. It's pretty simple. Someone else says, if you think if you've got privacy, think again. You're logging onto Facebook or Instagram, obtains more of your data than recording someone in a store. Most stores have security cameras anyway. This isn't any different. And someone says, to stop the abuse is a great idea, but how long until the body camera footage is used against the staff? That's a really interesting question. To chat more about this, I've and the privacy issues around it, I've got Peter Holland with me. He's a professor from the School of Business, Law and Entrepreneurship at Swinburne University. Peter, thanks for coming on Hack. That's great. No, no problem. Just to start with, if you went into a store and you were being served by someone who was wearing a camera, say, pinned on their chest, how would 
you feel about it or what would would you do anything about it? Um, interesting. Um, in that context, I was thinking about this when you had the issues go running there is that I was in a major supermarket yesterday and I was doing the self-service and I looked down and saw myself being videoed on the screen and I was sort of thinking, well, why do I need to be videoed? Um, that would be the first concern I would have is that why, why actually do you need it? And I've heard the arguments uh, in, in your in your piece. Um, yeah. the, the first thing that comes to mind here is that my son works in retail and he says he's had abuse, but yeah. it, it's it's been consistent. I know people said because of the housing crisis and, and, and cost of living, but my concern is something called functional creep. Do these cameras go away when we get into better times? And I suspect not. I think that once they're in, they're on. And But I always have a concern that why would you have that? And with the real estate, I can understand if you're going into someone's house, you've not been there before. But if you have a safety concern, maybe it's two people should go in. The camera's not going to protect you. It's going to maybe uh, show the incident, but it's not going to protect you. And also as well, most people carry a smartphone today which has a camera on it. So... I'm just a bit concerned about what I call functional creep. No one's talked about how long they're keeping the data for, where yeah. it's stored, how it's stored. And I think at the end of your piece, talked about what are the consequences of for it being used down the track, who's looking at it, things like that. So that would be my concerns is what's it used for, how's it kept, and why is it being kept? Yeah, that question of you called it functional creep, is it that these these kind of devices and this kind of surveillance is becoming really normalised like this surveillance creep but we're becoming really conditioned now that we do like we said oh well if it's if it's at the self-service checkout or if the CCTV then therefore someone's wearing it that we become conditioned to finding it acceptable now. Exactly right and, and I think most of us will have had the experience of someone from a call centre might ring you up and saying we are recording this for training processes now most call centres run off a script so what training are they actually having to do doing the same thing 200 times a day but the key thing here is that we accept it because they say it's training but they're actually recording information about you it's it's the fact that no one said that when things get better we'll of course get rid of the cameras um but the camera doesn't protect you from the incident as i said my son doesn't wear a body camera but he's had incidents they've got cameras and security everywhere but the camera doesn't protect you it's a i think it's a false a false dawn to say that because i've got a camera i will be protected it may show the incident, but again, none of these people also, and I might be a bit controversial here, no one actually said I was assaulted or there was an assault. There mm. was a real estate issue, but maybe in those type of situations, you send two people rather than one person to something like that if you fear there's going to be an incident. And also, can I also talk about the issue of the power imbalance? If, yeah. if you're a tenant, people, people are struggling to get houses. If, if the real estate ring you up and say, we're coming to your house and we're going to use body cameras, what, what negotiating position do you have to say, no, I refuse you? Because the first thing people are going to think, if I say no, they might give me a detrimental yeah. uh, assessment. Absolutely. So and Peter, we got a message just before saying about um, how long until this body camera footage is used against the staff. This, In yeah. this instance, it is about protecting staff. But yeah, just to that question, is it becoming more um, common for businesses to use similar technology to surveil their own staff? Yes, and this is the thing about functional creep. The idea is to protect the staff and staff agree to it. Then someone will say, wouldn't it be a good idea to assess them for training when they go and inspect a house? So then it gets used for something else. And um, the, the big concern that we've had during the pandemic, 80% around the world, a study found that 80% of uh, private companies 
put spyware on the computers of their workers working at home. It's called bossware or tattleware. In Australia, it was 90%. So there's a lot of functional creep about people watching and doing. Uh, I, I've, got to, I've got to protect my assets by watching my workers. And ultimately, people feel, feel uncomfortable with this. Uh, I say this to my students, are you uncomfortable being monitored and surveilled? And they generally say no. So if I go around and stand behind them, they feel uncomfortable because they feel the presence of it. And I think cameras are something like that. They feel the presence of that surveillance there. And as I said, it can be used for other things. We've got it. Yeah. We might as well use it. That's yeah. the key. Uh, man, like I said, it's really divisive on the text line. Someone says, Dave says, 1984 wasn't even close. Privacy is a complete myth. And um, someone else says, yeah, it's fine in a public space, but you should see how much people's behaviour improves once they know that there's a camera around. And another uh, texter says, I work in government child protection. Obviously, we caught plenty of people who abuse yeah. us. While body-worn videos might help resolve some of these disputes, I do think it'll put families offside. Peter, we've got to move on, but thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and chatting about some of these issues that um, you know are becoming more and more common in this day and age. So thank you. No problem. My pleasure, Joe. Thank you. That's Peter Holland, and he's a professor from the School of Business, Law and Entrepreneurship at Swinburne University. Hack. Anger at the 22-year-old's treatment sparked the biggest wave of anti-regime protests in years. On Triple J. Hey, this is Hack. I'm Joe Lauder filling in for Dave Marchese. Last year, there were incredible scenes in Iran where women and girls all around the country defiantly took off their hijabs and it kick-started a national uprising. And it seemed like revolution was again coming to the repressive regime. But then there was a crackdown and there's not much talk about revolution at the moment in Iran in public. So what happened to these passionate young protesters who were leading the fight for a revolution? Journalist and shake-up regular Marty Smiley has been speaking to some of them for the ABC show Foreign Correspondent. Marty, thanks for coming back on Hack. Thanks for having me. Can you take us back to September 2022 and paint a picture of just how dramatic these protests in Iran were? Yeah, well... You know, this was a really remarkable event in Iran's history, something you haven't seen since the 1979 revolution. Thousands of people uh, on the streets uh, in over 80 cities around the country. Um, and that was, you know, within a three-week period it, ex- it spread across that many cities uh, in Iran. And this was a women-led protest. So it was really pioneered by women. Um, and that was that's also remarkable in itself. Uh, they were protesting against the mandatory hijab laws, and also just at large, they were fighting for societal change, fighting for their rights. You know, their rights to dance, to sing, to uh, wear what they want. And you know, it really swept the world. It caught people's attention. Um, it captures captured people's minds, and uh, it became a, a movement. You know the women, life, freedom movement, Xinjiang, Azadi. Um, And, you know, it's been uh, something that in recent months we probably haven't heard a lot about. Uh, And that's, you know, because it falls out of the news cycle because we stop seeing people out on the streets. But from the protesters, the young dissidents, these brave men and women that I spoke to, um, what they tell me is it's not over and they're not going to give up. Um, you know, fighting for um, change in Iran within their lifetime. What were the protests like for the protesters that you spoke to, these young dissidents? Just how intense were some of the moments that they found themselves in? 
Yeah, well, a lot of them are now dealing with the effects of PTSD because of, yeah, the violence they witnessed um, and experienced themselves. Um, A young protester by the name of Yazi, you know, she was a student nurse before the protests even happened. You know, she's studying nursing, doing a degree, and suddenly she's at, at the protests and finding herself actually using those skills on the streets. One boy within maybe 10 to 15 metres of me was shot in this area. I've never had to remove any object out of one's body, but I've seen it done. I know how it's done. Yeah, wow. So she was actually removing bullets from protesters. That That's insane. Yeah, and she's kept it, you know, as a memento uh, because to her keeping that pallet, you know, that bullet to her shows that she was able to do something, that she contributed and it tells her that something good happened there. You know, she was able to um, save this boy from um, more severe injury or death. And there was so much rage but also so much empowerment and such an uprising that we saw last year in Iran and it did seem like things were changing but then there was this crackdown that came from the regime afterwards. What happened with the crackdown and like what happened to some of these dissidents that you spoke to? Were they targeted? From the protests that we spoke to, you know, the crackdown was severe. Um, It was brutal. Um, Tens of thousands of people were arrested Hundreds died, some by execution, some publicly. So the regime was trying to send a message to not come out on the streets anymore. If you do, this is what could happen to you. And, you know, I think what was remarkable about about what we heard from them is that they found other ways to resist. Um, We heard from a young computer programmer who turned into a hacker, basically. Uh, He started finding other ways to fight the regime online. They cut their hair and and recorded the videos and uploaded them onto um, social media. And then, of course, the regime cracked down by cutting off the internet um, in almost, you know, in many cities and regions around the country. So then they were trying to find ways to use VPNs so they weren't monitored. And with so much fear, I imagine, around the crackdown and people going to prison, getting pulled off the streets, these um, deaths happening around them, th- this is kind of the context that was happening around this story. And then you're, you've gone in and you've made this documentary and Iran must be one of the hardest places, one of the hardest regions to try and do a documentary like this. How did you go about it in a safe way? I know. Normally, when I come on Triple J, I'm on the shake up, and <laughs> <A bit> different. <laughs> it's a bit different. Um, yeah, this is the hardest project I've ever done. You know, I think even foreign correspondent doing this one, it was it was uniquely challenging, and the amount of work we went to to reduce the risks uh, of the program were immense. Um, you'll see, you know, we're on radio, so you can't see this, but you know, on the show, you can see they're wearing disguises, so. They chose how they wanted to appear and then they approved it at a later date. So uh, they're wearing masks. It's quite striking, the masks that they're wearing. Yeah, the traditional masks from Iran, you know, um, but there's also balaclava, wigs. There was a voice actor that was employed. Personal details were avoided, were being recorded on camera. Um, You know, there was a lot of lengths that were gone to, to make it a safe and secure shoot. But ultimately, it was a risk that they took and... I think that says something about their courage, that 
at the end of the day, um, their fear of speaking out didn't compare to their will to create change uh, in Iran. You're listening to Hack and I'm speaking to journalist Marty Smiley about his documentary about the uprising in Iran that happened one year ago and what has happened to really a lot of those young dissidents and protesters who led that uprising. It's going to be the anniversary in one month of Masa Amini's death and her death was what sparked those protests last year. Marty, do you think we're going to see more protests in September or has this revolution passed? Yeah, look, I think from what I'm hearing in private telegram channels, the the chat is that that's what they're talking about. They're talking about an uprising again or, or, or protests at least. And we have seen this before, you know, the anniversary of um, people's deaths became uh, battlegrounds, protests um, in solidarity to make sure they weren't forgotten and to effectively martyr um, the women that died or the men. And so I think it's likely that we will see something again, what size that takes and how that takes form, we don't know yet. But, you know, some of the people involved in the program have said that despite all that they've, you know, already lost in terms of some of their freedoms or they've lost relations with family members because of their involvement um, or, you know, they've lost a sense of just confidence in themselves, they are still committed um, to the cause and to the movement and, and they want to head back out onto the streets. Some people think that the revolution has ended, the streets are quiet, but I don't think so. It hasn't died down in my life. Taking off the hijab has become the greatest symbol of this revolution. The fact that you see the government fears us now, now we don't fear the government. We have become stronger. Marty, it's such an incredibly important story and fantastic work. Thank you so much for coming on Hack and chatting about it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It can be a tough, you know, subject to, to talk about and I appreciate it. Hack on Triple J. That's journalist and shake-up regular Marty Smiley and you can watch Iran The Fight Continues on Foreign, Foreign Correspondent tonight on the ABC at 8 o'clock or you can also check it out on iView. Hack. The program is just as relevant, if not more so these days. On Triple J. Yeah, in Brisbane, Eka is happening at the moment and it's a pretty big deal. For those of us not lucky enough to live in the sunny state, Eka is the big annual agricultural show up there. So there's lots of cake stalls or competitions. There's big animals, carnies, dagwood dogs, and of course, the showgirls. And honestly, I remember having a pretty big ick around showgirls. I thought the whole tradition had a bit of a reputation for being outdated and kind of unfeminist. But apparently the competition has changed. Bundaberg reporter Grace Whiteside finds out why showgirls are still a thing in 2023. For most of us, heading to the show is all about this stuff. Hey guys, catch it up. Every duck wins a prize. Everybody's welcome to get on the ride. Once a year, letting your inner kid out. But it's not quite like that for Jessie Gofton. Um, my best effort has been three shows in the one weekend. Jessie's an accountant from Ingham in North Queensland. She was also a finalist in this year's Queensland Showgirl Awards, which means show season is a hectic time. At my local level, at the Ingham show, it was really just about helping my local show committee um, and being that 
person that really connects your average show goer to the committee. Uh, where I was fortunate enough to take away the title of the North Queensland Subchamber Showgirl for 2023, uh, which means that I was off to the ECA. The North Queensland show run was full ball from May to the start of August. Agricultural shows have a long history in rural Australia, dating back to the 1800s. South Australia, the Adelaide Royal is off to a colourful start. The Sydney Royal Show takes pride of place among the most important events down under. A proud spectacle of the aristocrats of the land. the noblest animals in the Commonwealth. There is an apple-packing championship for boys and girls. You might laugh, but for the competitors, this is serious business. And a big part of the tradition, mostly late last century, was the showgirls. This Easter show, 1963, chosen from more than a thousand contestants throughout New South Wales. Miss Showgirl was all about classy, smart, community-minded, single young women representing their town. Miss Blenninus, Miss Galvin, Miss Orange. The aim was to celebrate young female leaders, but the whole thing has been criticised as outdated pageantry. Each of the ten finalists paraded individually before the closely attentive crowd. All of the finalists were selected from Miss Show winners throughout country shows in New South Wales after being interviewed extensively by a judging panel. After what for some has been weeks of anxious awaiting, the places were announced. The winner being Miss Goldman, Jan Hewson. And it is a thing of the past in most places. Miss Showgirl was scrapped and replaced with a rural ambassador program in places like WA in 2000 and Victoria way back in 96. In fact, Queensland and New South Wales are the only states in the country that still do it. Although New South Wales changed the name of the comp last year to Young Women of the Year after a 60-year showgirl history, and it's definitely not as popular as it once was. Had older girls in the past, you know, oh wow, she was a showgirl, she got to travel away. You know, she must be very confident or that's wonderful for her. But I never thought it was something that was achievable for myself until I was asked to put my hand up. And yeah, really at the moment it is it's, um, hard to find girls locally. And I think it's just because there's not as much awareness. So is this a quaint relic from the old days? or does it still have value? I think now more than ever, that's a huge thing. We're trying to bring up more female leaders in our communities and this program's just wonderful for that. Jessie says she didn't know a whole lot about the program before her friend Ingham Showgirl last year nudged her to do it and she reckons it's been the best thing. Here's Ellie O'Hara, the awards coordinator. But at no point in the 41 years of the Queensland Showgirl Awards has this ever been a beauty pageant. And we believe that now more than ever, the Showgirl Awards is, is so needed in our community to have a platform solely for women that is uh, focused on engaging young women and, and encouraging them and, and empowering them to be future leaders in their communities, we believe is so essential. And to distance themselves even further from the idea of the awards being a beauty pageant, the last two years they brought in a more egalitarian approach. One of the young ladies wouldn't be dressed in something that's quite expensive as compared to somebody who is in something less expensive. In the back room of a clothing shop in the small town of Monto, about 500 k's northwest of Brisbane, Helen Webb is making the same navy linen dress for all 10 showgirl finalists to wear during their time at the Ecker. And therefore it's not about 
the, necessarily the clothing that they're wearing, the actual personality and attributes of the young women who are there as finalists shining through more so. Jessie says dressing in the uniform was a great idea and reckons the whole experience is still super relevant. I would do it again in a heartbeat and all the girls that I met are absolutely fantastic. We've made lifelong connections, not only the girls ourselves, but with a lot of the connections we made with um, people in the community and people in the show movement. It's just amazing. Hack on Triple J. That was Bundaberg reporter Grace Whiteside finding out why showgirls are still a thing in 2023 and how a lot of that tradition has changed from what, you know, even from when I was younger, but how it's changed for the 21st century. We've got a few messages on this. Um, Someone says, sorry, but showgirls are the most empowered ones if they're out there and they choose to flaunt it. Someone else says they are smart, strong, empowered women with a head on their shoulders and it's their choice. I don't really see a problem with it if the women are comfortable. Someone else says, showgirls aren't outdated. We've become so politically correct that we don't enjoy anything anymore. If they choose to do it, it's their choice. Dave's going to be back for the shake-up tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.